we think this morning, as we continue in the unbroken story of God, I just want to ask you, as we get started, what would you consider to be your most life-changing moments, right? What are the handful of moments you would point to in your life that are markers, where you have what your life was like before this happened, and then what your life was like after this happened? The truth is, our lives really are a series of moments and events that shape us and mold us into who we are today. But as we look back at our lives, there are some moments that we would call life-changing moments. They mark time for us in that way. We remember other things when they happen based on how it happened in relation to those big moments. And some of those life-changing moments are moments that we recognize as such at that time, births and Deaths and weddings and graduations and new jobs, big things. We know that our lives are changing, but when we have the time to reflect, it's probably just as often as we look back that our lives changed in moments that we didn't know were going to be life-changing moments. As I think about my life, there really are a mixture of those two. There are the obvious moments when life changed, moments like graduating from high school and college and seminary, the time in fall of 2009 when the Lord called me to minister to students at First Baptist Church in Sonora, and then last year when He called me to serve here at Valley Creek in my current role. Those were obviously moments when things were going to change in my life, but there were also some moments that weren't as obvious at the time. I can think back in my life, you probably can too, to long, close friendships, and remember the first time that you met that person maybe, or maybe you can't even remember because you didn't know at that time that that relationship would become so important to you in your life. But close friendships certainly do change our lives. And then there was the time that I went to vacation Bible school when I was nine years old. I didn't go into that week expecting a major life event or a major life change. I don't know that anybody goes into any event at nine years old thinking that their life is going to be drastically changed. But that's exactly what happened that week as Jesus convicted me of my sin and as he called me to follow him and he saved me from my sin. And when I finally began to then later on in my teenage years began to hear or at least listen to the Lord's call into ministry, it was then as well God used the familiar story of Moses, which I heard many times before to change the direction of my future. And so life-changing moments can take many forms in our lives, but the most significant change happens when we have an encounter with the Lord. And the way we'll look at this morning is that God changes our identity, and we see that in the story of Jacob this morning. And so we want to take a look today at his life-changing moment in Genesis 32, beginning in verse 22. If you have your copy of God's Word, you can follow along with me there. It says, The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, Please tell me your name. But he said, 
Why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Peniel, limping because of his hip. Therefore to this day the people of Israel do not eat of the sinew on the th- of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. So we look at this event in the life of Jacob. We can make a few observations this morning about how God changes lives. God initiates life-changing moments. That's the first observation we'll make. God initiates life-changing moments. This wrestling match takes place as Jacob is on his way back home. And he's on his way back home because of what had actually happened the chapter before in chapter 31, verse 1, beginning there. It says, Now Jacob heard that the sons of Laban were saying, Jacob has taken all that was our father's. And from what was our father's, he has gained all this wealth. And Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as before. And then the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. The circumstances in Jacob's life were shifting. And as God does in moments of confusion for us, things, when things look clear or unstable, the Lord speaks into Jacob's life here with clarity, with a clear message. He tells Jacob to return to the land of his father, to return to his family. And he promises that as Jacob goes, that the Lord would be with him. And through the circumstances of his life, so through, Jacob, through the sons of Laban and what they were saying, through all the things that were happening around him, God initiates a change here in Jacob's life. And so Jacob goes on his way home. But as we look at chapter 32, what makes this such a pivotal moment in Jacob's life, to understand that, we need to know a little bit more about who he was before. So we look back at the beginning of Jacob's life. Jacob and his twin brother Esau were born to Isaac, who we learned about last week, who was born to, to Abraham as the fulfillment of God's promise. So Jacob and Esau were born to Isaac and his wife Rebekah as the answer to their father's prayer. But even before their birth, the Bible tells us of conflict between the brothers. Genesis 25, 24-26 tell of their birth. It says, When her days to give birth were completed, behold, they were twins in the womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was six years old when she bore him. At birth, Jacob's given a name that literally means to grasp at the heel. He was grasping at the heel of his older brother. It's a term associated with someone who is grasping after something that is not theirs. It's a term associated with deception. And at birth, we're told Jacob was already living up to his name, trying to take his older brother's place as the firstborn. And that identity as a deceiver is one that Jacob lived up to throughout his life. The firstborn son in that culture was the rightful heir of the household. And in this case, the heir to the promises God had made to Abraham and then to Isaac. But Jacob, the younger brother, wanted his older brother's birthright for himself. And so he begins that process. He begins scheming to try to figure out how to make that happen. He begins by convincing Esau in a moment of weakness to sell him his birthright for a bowl of stew. And then you may have read the story that Isaac was very old and his vision was very poor. And he called for Esau to go hunting and then to prepare a delicious meal. And then the plan was Isaac was going to bless Esau, his oldest son, before he died. But Rebekah overheard the 
conversation and overheard the plan and devised a plan of her own by which Jacob would receive the blessing instead of his older brother. And so Rebecca prepared a meal, and Jacob dressed up like his brother Esau, who was apparently much more hairy and much more of an outdoorsman than Jacob, and he went to see their father Isaac, convinced him that he was his brother, and then received the blessing that did not belong to him. Just as he was doing at their birth, Jacob was grasping after what wasn't his, doing whatever it took to get what he wanted. And the thing about Jacob's deception in the early part of his life, as we look at his story, is it was working. And he was getting the things that he wanted. He got the things he was grasping after. He got what he didn't have, but what Jacob found is what we also find when we grasp after things that God says don't belong to us, or when we try to get things in ways that God says not to get them. When Jacob got everything he wanted, he still didn't have peace because, unsurprisingly, Esau, his brother, whom he'd stolen from, is both heartbroken and enraged to learn of Jacob's deception. And so Rebekah has to send Jacob away from their home out of fear that, that Esau would injure Jacob or kill Jacob. And so she sends him away from their home to her brother Laban, where he will be safe from Esau. And on his way, Jacob has an encounter with the Lord in a dream, and he calls that place Bethel, which means house of God. And we see from that point in Jacob's life, it's clear that God is doing something in his life. He's at work in Jacob's life. And yet, Jacob's life continues to be marked by deception. And it isn't just Jacob that's doing the deceiving. As we go on through his story, we see that Jacob agrees to work for Laban for seven years, and in exchange, Laban says that he will let him marry his daughter Rachel. But at the end of seven years, Laban tricks Jacob into marrying Leah instead. And then when Laban agrees to give Jacob all the speckled and spotted sheep from their herd, we see both Laban and Jacob trying to scheme to come out ahead in the agreement that they have made. They're both trying to scheme and deceive and to get ahead. And that brings us into Genesis chapter 31 where God initiates a change in Jacob's life. God's been working all along in his life, all through his life, to bring him to this life-changing moment where he's returning home to face his brother Esau. After many years, he's going back to see Esau, the one who had been affected the most by Jacob's life of deception and his life of sin. When Jacob, when Jacob heard this word, it says that he got up and went, but we see God initiating this life-changing moment in his life, and he did it at a time when Jacob's entire life really had been, had been marked by deception. And God sends Jacob home to Esau. He does it at a moment when Jacob's been pursuing blessing and wealth and, and blessing and promise, all of the things that he wanted, but he's been doing it at the expense of those around him. And that's a pursuit that never satisfies, because even the best things that we can get in this world don't satisfy us apart from God's good design in our lives. And so as Jacob returns home, his name told his story. He was a deceiver, constantly grasping after what wasn't his, what he didn't have, never able to find the satisfaction he wanted. That was his identity. It's who he was. And so God initiates a change in Jacob's life. And he brings him to this moment of crisis where everything about him would be Change. And so the next observation we can make about how God changes lives as we look at Jacob's story is this. We can experience change as we recognize our need. We can experience change in our lives as we recognize 
our need. As Jacob sets out toward his brother's house, he sends word ahead that he's coming in peace. He's hoping there that he'll be able to find favor with his brother Esau. Maybe that Esau will be forgiving and gracious toward him. And so in Genesis 32, 6, he um, sends this word. He sends, in Genesis 32, 6, we read of Esau's response. Esau learns that Jacob is coming to him. He learns that he's coming back his way, and his response doesn't really fill Jacob with a lot of confidence. It probably wouldn't fill us with a lot of confidence either as he sends all these men back to Jacob coming his way. Genesis 32, 6 says this. The messengers returned to Jacob saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he's coming to meet you. And there are 400 men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two camps, thinking if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. Jacob's on the journey home that the Lord has initiated in his life, and he quickly comes to realize he could be in trouble. And his brother is not just coming to him, arms open wide, looking to give him a hug. He doesn't appear. He's coming to him with 400 men. And Jacob is afraid, he's distressed, and so the Lord has led Jacob into this moment where he is completely, completely desperate, really, trying to figure out what he's going to do to protect those around him. He looks around, he realizes the danger to his life and to his family's lives, he realizes his own inability to protect them, and so he does the best he can, but Jacob here begins to recognize his need, and he cries out to the Lord for help, confessing how unworthy he is of the Lord's steadfast love and protection, and then he humbles himself before his brother, and he tells his servants to identify themselves as Esau's servant when they see, when they see Esau face to face. So Jacob's humbling himself here before the Lord, he's humbling himself before his brother, he's beginning to recognize his need, his desperation, and he's come here by chapter 32 to this moment where he is completely desperate, he's completely at the end of himself. This man who's always had a scheme, always had a plan to get out of it, always had a plan to make things work, realizes there's no lie that's going to save him this time. There's no scheme that will keep him safe. That's always been true, but God brings Jacob to this moment, as he will do with us, where his prideful self-reliance, his self-righteousness, all of it gets stripped away from him, and all that's left is his need for the Lord. And that's where we come to Jacob's life-changing moment that we read earlier, all alone, in the darkness of the night, nobody else is around, a man comes and wrestles with Jacob until daybreak. So you look at this passage, it's a little slow to identify Jacob's opponent to us, but by the end of the match, it's clear that Jacob is wrestling with who? He's wrestling with the Lord. He's wrestling with God. We see here Jacob is no weakling. He struggles with God all night long. We see Jacob's determination and his perseverance against his opponent. But then in one moment, the whole story changes. It says that God just reaches out and touches Jacob's hip. And when he touches Jacob's hip socket, his hip goes out of joint. And now one moment, God demonstrates his power. He demonstrates his strength with just a touch of Jacob's hip. At this point in the story, Jacob asks God to bless him, to which the Lord replies with an interesting question. What is your name? Might seem confusing to us, because if this is God wrestling with Jacob, then surely he knows his name, right? He's not coming in to Jacob were coming in like sometimes we might into a crowd of people and say, now we've met before, right? But remind me 
who it is I'm talking to right now. That's not what God is doing here. So why does the Lord ask Jacob his name? It's not because he doesn't know who Jacob is. It's because up to this point, Jacob hasn't fully recognized who he is. He hasn't fully confessed to the Lord the extent of his rebellion and his sin against an almighty God. And so when Jacob answers God's question here, he's saying more than just, this is my name. He's saying, this is my identity. This is who I am. I am Jacob. His whole life was captured in that name. He was a deceiver, a sinner, one who had spent his entire life grasping after what was not his at the expense of those around him. He lived a life that was reliant not on the Lord's strength and power, but on his own strength. And face to face with God, he sees his brokenness. We can experience change as we recognize our need. Jacob's fear of Esau brought him low, and his encounter with the Lord let him see that he was not going to be able to weasel his way out of this one. And Jacob confesses at this point who he's been all of his life. And that's the moment when God says to Jacob, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. God says to Jacob, He's no longer a deceiver, striving with people to get his way. Now he will be called Israel, which means strives with God. In return, Jacob asked the Lord's name, getting only a blessing in response. And it's clear to Jacob from this point on exactly who he's been wrestling with. Jacob confesses in verse 30, I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. Jacob interprets some of what we've seen up to this point. Jacob realizes at this point that as he wrestled with the Lord, when the Lord said that Jacob had prevailed, it was only because his life had been spared. It was only because God had looked upon him with grace. An opponent who could just touch Jacob's hip and put it out of socket was too great for Jacob to overpower. Jacob's only hope in the midst of this wrestling match with God had been God's mercy and God's grace. Jacob survived this night with God. And he survived all the years up to this moment in his life because God had delivered him to this point. And it's only as Jacob recognizes his need that the Lord changes his name because it's only when we recognize our need that real change, heart change, lasting change can happen in our lives. God initiates life-changing moments. We can experience change as we recognize our need. A third observation as we look at Jacob's story. God provides life change through his grace. For all his years of seeking after blessing and promise, it wasn't one of Jacob's schemes. It wasn't one of his lies that transformed his life. It was God's grace. God intervening in the life of Jacob at his lowest point. The moment when he had nothing at all to boast about. The moment he had nothing to offer. That is the moment to produce change in Jacob's life. God's grace provided a change in Jacob's life that Jacob could not bring about on his own. God's grace provided a change in Jacob's life that Jacob did not deserve. God's grace provided a change in Jacob's life that went far beyond what he asked or imagined. It went all the way to Jacob's need. And so grace kind of provides for us by his grace. And grace does a few things in our lives. Grace turns us fully to the Lord. We could talk all day about what grace does in our lives this morning. We're just going to look at three things grace does for us, though. Grace turns us fully to the Lord. We've seen what Jacob's life was like before he met the, before he had this wrestling match with God. And so we can see this complete transformation that happens in his life. 
After his wrestling match with God, Jacob declares the name of this place, Peniel, which means the face of God. Because there he saw God face to face. Jacob finds it notable in saying he saw God face to face to say here, yet my life has been delivered. Seems Jacob saw something different than many who claim to believe in God or follow God today because Jacob saw God so holy and so powerful that he was surprised by God's grace toward him. Jacob didn't presume that God owed him anything or that God should show him grace. But by grace, Jacob saw a God who was worthy of his undivided attention. His encounter with the Lord turned his heart and his life around completely, away from the deception and sin toward a life of faithful worship. We see that transformation in Jacob's life. It wasn't a measured response. It wasn't, wasn't just a short-term change that happened over a few days, and then he was back to his old ways. It was a whole other full-time transformation. We see that in Genesis 35, beginning in verse 2. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel, so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. A few chapters earlier, we saw Rachel stealing the household gods of her father Laban. And now we hear Jacob saying to his family, no more. No more foreign gods. We're going to worship the God who has always been with us. The God who has always answered us when we call. Grace turns us fully to the Lord, away from our sin and to faith in Him. Grace turns us fully to the Lord and grace returns us to His purposes. We've seen plenty about Jacob pursued his purposes, lying and cheating, stealing to get what he wanted. But after his encounter with the Lord, we see a renewed purpose in his life. His purpose was no longer about himself and his blessing and his fame. His purpose was now what God had for him. That's what God does in our lives by his grace. He doesn't just remove from us the penalty of our sin. He doesn't even stop at turning our hearts and our lives back to him. He returns us. He restores us to the purpose that he had for us when he created us. Genesis 35, 11 and 12, God said to Jacob, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Through all the sin and depravity and the destruction that we've seen in these first 35 chapters of the book of Genesis, the first 35 chapters of God's Word, God has not given up on His purposes. And the word He speaks to Jacob here is the same word that He spoke to Adam and Eve. Be fruitful and multiply. We see God is committed to His purpose and His plan, that the earth will be filled with people who reflect His character and walk in His purpose. And when Jacob sees God face to face and lives, grace returns Jacob to God's purpose for his life. And grace reminds us also of our ongoing need. Grace reminds us of our ongoing need. As Jacob wrestled with the Lord, God just touched his hip and it went out of socket. And as the account of that night with the Lord ends in Genesis 32, verse 31 and 32, we read this, the sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. Jacob was delivered. His life was spared by the grace of God. 
But he walked away from that encounter with the Lord with a limp because of his hip. A reminder of how easily God could have overpowered him or destroyed him, but God showed him grace and mercy. We aren't really told how long Jacob had this limp in this passage. It could have been permanent. It could have been more short term. But what we know is that it was an ongoing reminder of how God's grace had met Jacob's need. And we know that it was a reminder of the need for God's grace because Israel continued not to eat the meat from the hip socket of the animals they ate because they remembered what God had done for Jacob. It was a reminder to them of what God had done then and what he would continue to do for them in the future. It was a reminder of God's faithfulness. And so, though God is the one who initiates life-changing moments, and it's his grace that provides the life change that we need, we know that we can quickly forget that. When God does something for us, when he gives us a victory over something in our lives, we can easily come to believe that we're getting it together, right? That we have come to this victory by our own strength or by our own willpower, that we've left our sin behind and now we're strong enough on our own to sustain what God has done for us by His grace. And because we're so forgetful, in His grace, God leaves us reminders of our ongoing need, reminders to turn our hearts fully to Him. God provides life change through His grace, and God finishes the work that He starts. He sustains life change through His grace, and He reminds us of our ongoing need. As we look at the totality of Jacob's life, we see what God did in his life. We summed it up, we would sum it up this way this morning. God changes our identity. God changes our identity. He works to initiate the life-changing moments that we need. He brings us to a place and a time where we can see our and recognize our need for his grace, and then he provides the change we need through his grace. We see him turn Jacob fully to the Lord. We see him return Jacob to his created purpose. We see him remind Jacob of his ongoing need for grace. He changes Jacob's identity from deceiver to one who contends with God or strives with God. He transforms a man whose entire life was marked by deception into someone whose life was marked by faithfulness to the Lord. God changes our identity. You see that this morning as we look at the life of Jacob and you think, well, yeah, that's a nice story, right? That's a story of something that happened thousands of years ago, but I haven't had too many wrestling matches with God in my life. So what's it matter to me, right? What's it make a difference in my life? I am who I am. I've been who I've always been. It's who I always will be. I've tried to make some changes, but I just keep falling back to the same patterns. And so it's good that God changed Jacob's identity, but I need a God who can change my identity. That's where you find yourself today, then just remind you that the world in which we live is broken, but God's plans and his purposes are not. He's still the same God who spoke the world into existence. He's still the same God who changed Jacob's identity. And if you're not sure that's the case, then I'll point you to the New Testament, to the book of Acts, to a man named Saul. After Jesus was crucified for the sins of mankind and died the death that we deserve to die because of our sin. He was raised on the third day and he, was he ascended into heaven. And as Jesus ascended into heaven, the Holy Spirit came down and word of what Jesus had done was spreading like wildfire. People were amazed at the good news of Jesus and the early church was growing exponentially. But not everyone was pleased by the church's growth and by 
this development. There was a man, we're told, whose name was Saul. He was a Pharisee. He was a religious leader in his day. He was zealous for God, or so he thought. And he was determined to put an end to the church's growth, no matter what it took. Saul was the leading persecutor of the early church until God initiated a life-changing moment in his life. Jesus appeared to Saul on the road to Damascus, and Saul was blinded by the light. And Jesus confronted Saul directly, saying, Why are you persecuting me? Saul was blind for three days. He was led into the city by the hand. And just as he did with Jacob, God brought Saul to a place where he couldn't see anything except his need for God's grace. And there in his humble state, the Lord provided a change in Saul's life by his grace. And at that moment, Saul's heart, Saul's life was turned fully to the Lord. The church's greatest persecutor became the gospel's loudest proclaimer. God returned Saul to the purpose for which he was created, reflecting the glory and grace of God to the nations. And that new identity as an ambassador of Christ to the nations was even reflected in his name. From Acts 13 on, the Hebrew Saul is called by his Roman name Paul as he took the good news of Jesus throughout the Roman Empire. God changed Paul's identity. He changed Jacob's identity and he changes our identity. Sometimes we want that to mean that life is always going to be easy for us from here on out after we have an encounter with Jesus. But like Jacob, Paul's life shows us how grace reminds us that we still need the Lord. We have an ongoing need for the Lord. 2 Corinthians 12, 7-10, Paul testifies there about a thorn in the flesh about this unspecified struggle that he had that was ongoing. And he says that it reminded him of his need for the Lord. Look at those verses in 2 Corinthians 12. It says, So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. That's good news this morning. If you're ever weak, God's grace reminds us of our ongoing need, lest we would rely on our own strength and return to our self-righteousness and to our self-reliance that destroys our souls. God changes our identity. He did it in Jacob's life, who became Israel. He did it in Saul, who became Paul. And 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11 tells us he does it in us. It says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Such were some of you, Paul says. Such were some of you. What is your identity? this morning? What is your identity this morning? Is it 
unrighteous? Is it sexually immoral or idolater or adulterer? Like Jacob, it might be deceiver or liar or cheater. You might be known for your gossip or for your divisive or hateful speech or by what you own or maybe by what you look like. But the message today is that none of those things or whatever your thing is, whatever it is that you think defines you, none of those things have to be our identity today. When we recognize our need and we have an encounter with the risen Jesus, then He can change our identity. Some of you can testify this morning today that as we read that list in 1 Corinthians, you could say, that's who I was, but by God's grace, it isn't who I am. Is there anybody in this room this morning who could say, because I've been washed, I've been sanctified, I've been justified by the name of Jesus and the Spirit of God, God has changed my identity? Anybody at all? Today, today, one of two things is true for each of us in this room. Either you need Him to change your identity, you need God to change your identity today, or you need to be reminded that He's already changed your identity. If you've never had an experience with Jesus, then today is the day for you to confess your need for His grace and turn your heart fully to Him who has brought you to this place today by His grace. Today, He can change your identity from liar or cheater or idolater or whatever you've been told your identity is to a new identity. Son of God. Daughter of God. And if He's already done that for you today, then... I pray that we'll leave here today reminded of what He has done for us. We didn't do it for ourselves. He's the one who deserves the glory. And the good news for us there is that if He's the one who's done it, we know that God's plan, His purpose is unbroken. And so if He's done it, then He's still doing it. We know that if He's doing it, then He won't stop until the work is finished. And so if you're in Jesus today, you might feel tired or weary or discouraged. You might feel like the accusations of the enemy are true, that you are nothing more than who you were. But take heart today because if you're in Jesus, such were some of you. You've been washed, sanctified, and justified. You've got a new identity, a renewed purpose, and grace that is always sufficient for the trouble at hand. God changes our identity. What is your identity this morning? Has it changed yours? Let's pray. Father, today, today, Lord, we thank you that you're a God who changes our identity. That you're a God who sees our need even before we see our need. That you're a God who has been pursuing us, Lord, even before we knew that we were lost, Lord. We thank you that you're a God who initiates life-changing moments in our lives, Lord, that you bring us to a place where we can see our need, Lord, and that then, like Jacob, that we can have an encounter with you, Lord, and that when we see who you are and we see who you, Jesus is and we see what you have done, in our lives, Lord, that we can, by faith, turn away from who we were and turn our hearts and our minds and our eyes fully to Christ, Lord. And so we pray today that you would help us to do just that, Lord, that you would give us grace to confess our need to you, Lord, that you would give us grace.
to, to see what you're doing in our lives and in our midst, Lord, that you would give us grace to be reminded today of what you've already done for us, Lord, that as we stand to sing, Lord, that we would sing, as we said earlier, we would sing as people who are free because you've set us free. No longer are we slaves to sin. No longer are we defined by our sin, Lord. We're, de we're defined by who Jesus is, that he came and that he died for us and that he's raised again. And so we sing today in victory and we sing today in freedom and in hope and in joy because of who you are, God. You're a God who changes our identity today, Lord. We thank you for the life change we've already celebrated today with Chuck as he has followed you in baptism, Lord. And so we just pray today that as we hear his testimony, as we see the stories of Jacob and, and of Paul and in the lives of those around us, Lord, that you would help us, help us, Lord, to trust that you're a God who can do the same thing in our lives, Lord. A God who's doing the same things in our lives, Lord, and that we would follow you faithfully and trust you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.